This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Latino voters are becoming an increasing segment of the American electorate and could control the current Congress, next presidential election, and America's political future. Which party are they supporting? And what is the key to getting their backing? We discuss the issue today with Professor M.V. Trey Hood III, a political scientist with the University of Georgia, a state where Latinos are expected to play a crucial role and decide a critical upcoming U.S. Senate race and control of that chamber. Hello, Professor. Hello. Good afternoon from the classic city. Yeah, Athens, Georgia. Athens, Georgia. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's, it's kind of nice to have you as a special guest because Georgia is really a microcosm of what's happening in the nation. And uh, Latinos are expected to play that critical role in the next U.S. Senate race there with uh, Raphael Warnock, who won the special election in 2020, but has to run for the full term. Tell us a little bit about Georgia and Latino voter growth there. Well, I've I've been in the state myself about 22 years, and it's something I've, I've been tracking for about two decades. And uh, his, the Hispanic population is definitely growing. Uh, and so currently, it's about 10.5%, according to the 2020 census, of the total state population are Hispanics. Um, and the their voting strength has been growing too. But I, I do want to point out that there's a little bit of what we call a stair step from population numbers all the way down to the voting population. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to throw a whole bunch of numbers at people since this mm-hmm. is a podcast, but I'm just going to go through something really simple here, if that's okay. Sure. So 10.5% of the total population in Georgia are, are Hispanics. 9% to the voting age population, those 18 years of age and older are Hispanic, so 10.5 down to 9. Of the citizen voting age population, Hispanics comprise 5% of the citizen voting age population. And then if you go down to the voter registrant population, Hispanics are 4.5% in Georgia. And then if you go down to voters, so the electorate, say in the 2020 presidential election, Hispanics comprise 3.6% of the electorate. So that you're, we're going from 10.5 total population down to 3.6 in terms of the electorate. So, I mean, but a couple of points along with that, the Hispanic population and along with that, the Hispanic electorate's definitely been growing, but it's not able to really, for a lot of reasons, reach its full potential uh, you know, we don't know the answer to this, but something else that's a little bit of a conundrum is that uh, even controlling for citizenship, even once you take citizenship out of the equation for Hispanics, so everyone we're talking about is a citizen, Hispanic registration and turnout rates still lag behind those for uh, blacks and whites in Georgia. 
I wanted to mention that turnout rate because even nationally that's been an issue saying, okay, we have this electorate on the rolls, but there was not a great return in terms of voting in the 2020 race too. But even that 3%, is that critical in the in the Senate race? Well, if we had a very close, I think the Senate race, it looks like Herschel Walker will most likely win the Republican primary and run against Warnock. And I, I view that race to be a toss up myself. So it could be very close. And even though we're just talking about, say, 3.5%, 3.6% of the electorate, yes. Uh, I mean, depending on which way that group went, you know, it could it could be a deciding factor. Yeah, and the Herschel Walker, I think the last poll I saw uh, showed him leading if it, in a head-to-head with Warnock. But, you know, polls, I mean, you know, they change so much. And and uh, it, how about in that presidential election? I know, you know, Georgia went with uh, President Biden, and then the, the U.S. Senate chamber went with Warnock won. They, the Democrats got control of that, and I think Hispanics were c- critical in Pennsylvania, too, where really pushed Biden over the top. Um, did, did, were they, did they play an important role in that? That race at all? Well, I haven't, uh, just to be really honest, I haven't done an exact analysis on the Hispanic vote in Georgia, um, but certainly to the extent to which they were Democratic voters, you know, the presidential election in Georgia was a squeaker. So yes. just literally, yeah. you know, sort of like the a Florida situation, every vote counting, literally. So and you mentioned the parties. It, it seems like uh, traditionally Latinos have sided with the Democratic Party, but I'm seeing a lot of reports where they're moving over to the Republicans. Do you see that or do you see that nationally? Yeah, there's some evidence of that. There certainly is. Now, just as a group, I mean, and again, we're sort of calling a whole bunch of different kinds of individuals Hispanics because, you know, sure, one of the ways sure. you can divide Hispanics up is by country of origin. And sure, sure. So uh, that, there's a lot of differences there, but yeah, to answer your question, um, you know, in general, Hispanics as a group certainly tilt democratic most of the time, majority democratic, but there's definitely been some movement in South Texas and in South Florida, uh, among Hispanics towards the Republican party. And, you know, there, and this is from voting data, so we don't even have to rely on, on surveys necessarily. Um, you know, there's there's some of these counties are so heavily Hispanic, you're not going to make an ecological inference mm-hmm. mistake. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. can look at the 2016 to 2020 election and, mm-hmm. you know, Trump is picking up votes in these heavily Hispanic counties. It was interesting here because I'm in St. Petersburg and I watched the Florida race very closely. And in Southeast Florida really decided the race here. And one of the things that they capitalized on is they were pushing Biden and saying Biden was going to lead us to socialism. And I didn't think the president's uh, campaign really answered that. President Biden's campaign answered that. I think they kind of conceded that. And the reason was, was, and the reason it helped Trump was a lot of these Latino voters are coming from Colombia and Venezuela, where they saw socialism, and Cuba, where they saw socialism equate with oppression. Um, how, do, uh, how, how is that playing in, do you think? I've heard that, and I think there probably could be some truth to that, because, again, because of certain countries of origin from where some of these Latinos are coming from. And I think you're right. I didn't really hear the Biden uh, campaign push back against that idea a whole lot. They just sort of glossed over it and kept going and, and 
maybe in retrospect, uh, I mean, he won, but he didn't win Florida. So maybe in Florida, in retrospect, that wasn't a good idea. Are the Democrats uh, losing on their message? Um, and, and, and I know it's interesting because you think of Latino voters um, and you think, OK, they're Latino, but they're also Americans that are concerned about the economy and they're concerned about education. It's not that they're concerned about one issue. No, you're right. Uh, they're they're. I think it's a, they're a really interesting group to study, but they're also somewhat complex uh, you know, in the Deep South, especially now, more than a majority of whites are Republican. You know, Ninety plus percent of, of African-Americans are Democratic, but you have Hispanics sort of in the middle. Again, they may tilt Democratic, except for Cubans. Um, but you've got a group that can get pulled and pushed either way because Hispanics, because a lot of them are Catholic um, and or in the United States, there is a growing evangelical Protestant number among Hispanics. You know, they tend to be fairly conservative on social issues, but at least traditionally have been fairly liberal on economic issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, both parties have a segue to, to try to win this group over. And some people will look at this and say, well, I don't understand why Latinos would support Trump because he's been bashing the immigrants and, and uh, you know, the, the Hispanics and Latinos coming over the border, the whole border issue and the wall. Um, how does how do we explain that? Well, I I don't know exactly. Um, you know, I, I think some of it's explained by, uh, you know, some Hispanics have been in Texas forever and ever. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think some people living along the border, you know, maybe feel like the, the, uh, the immigration issues in disarray and mm -hmm. you know, want mm -hmm. something to done about it, whether they're Hispanic or Anglo or whoever. So I, I think that maybe have, might have something to do with it. Yeah. And we have that other race out in Nevada, U.S. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, Masto who's, uh, I think, the first Latin Latino woman senator in history. And I think she's in that same situation as Warnock, where she won a special election and now has to run full full term. What do you see happening out there? Not as familiar with that race, to be honest. But, um, of course, you know, Hispanics are an even larger proportion uh, of the electorate out there. So, and, and she's sort of a co-ethnic candidate, so she might be able to win over some Hispanic voters, uh, you know, and who might cross party lines for her. Yes, and, she, and it's a big Republican state. I mean, we have Mitt Romney out there. I think he's, he's out that way. And uh, was old John McCain's state. And I think that might even be his seat that, she's, uh, that, that she took. But even in terms of getting, kind of getting back to Georgia, what has fueled uh, the Latino influx there? It's all economics, to be honest with you, uh, jobs and, and, you know, especially the, uh, the Atlanta metro area and what it has to offer in terms of jobs like uh, service industry, landscaping, construction. Um, a lot of Hispanics were uh, migrated to Georgia because of the poultry, poultry processing industry, which is huge in Georgia, uh, you know, Dalton. Uh, Georgia and Whitfield County, the, the carpet mills. So, you know, usually if you look long enough, you can figure out the reason for the migration to a certain area. 
It's very interesting. So, but it's it's usually based on economics, you know, getting a job. The the economics is obviously, I mean, it was the old Clinton line, right? It's uh, it's economy, stupid, you know. Right. Um. So we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't put them in a in a in a certain category and say, oh, they're just interested in immigration or 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 something like that. But what you were mentioning the voting, and and as I mentioned, um, there was a, a survey that said that, or uh, I guess some reports that there wasn't a lot of turnout in the Latino community, as, I guess, as much as there could be. What would you attribute that to? Well, there are different theories about that. Um, you know, a lot of people might have migrated or moved from a country where, uh, well, they may not have been in a democracy. And so yes. they just don't grow up, you know, with their parents participating in any meaningful way. Um, so sometimes it's sort of where they came from. But also if you've migrated, uh, you know, you have to acculturate, assimilate. Sometimes there are language barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there again, there's no one reason. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I wish I could figure out, you know, if there was one reason, but there doesn't seem to be. But it, it, it is a pattern that appears over and over again that Latinos are just not registering and turning out at, in the same numbers as whites and blacks are. Do you think that will change? Do you think that will down the road change? Well, it seems to be very slowly changing in Georgia. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very slow, though. So yes, yes, and um, in terms of that, there's a, there's a, I guess a question of are the Democrats losing them or are the Republicans gaining them? Uh, there seems to be a disconnect from the, the Democrats being able to, I guess, ensure that they stay uh, stay with them. Do you see the message of the Democrats being weaker than it, it needs to be? Well, I've I've often said that the real battleground in the in the deep south, as long as we have sort of this black white dichotomy between the parties, the the real battleground is going to be over Hispanics. You know, they're a mm-hmm. growing group of voters, and mm-hmm. they're they're as I said, they're open to some appeals from both parties, and so it's going to be up to which party can make the best appeal uh, to Hispanics as a group. And, um, I guess it, it, it gets back to that economy issue, which, which, which party can control the economy. Do you think that the fact that we are now in, uh, you know, high inflation, um, there's been questions about, you know, the, the president's managing of the economy. Um, will that factor in, do you think to that Georgia Senate race? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, nationally, it doesn't look to be a good year if you're a Democrat. It, it just doesn't. Midterm elections usually aren't great for the party uh, occupying the White House anyway. But we've got some other things going on, like inflation and 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 those types of things. And and uh, so yeah, I could really now. Sometimes you see in states, you can see sort of cross pressures and mm-hmm. or cross currents. So. A state may not necessarily be a microcosm of the national vote, but it doesn't look to be a great year for the Democrats if I were if I were betting on it. So Right. And we were talking about the Senate race, but we also have the midterms and there's a feeling that the Republicans will take over the House. And I saw a story this week about, you know, Florida again, that it could be critical in the House races. Do you see that happening too? Oh, yeah, it's very close. The partisan balance is. And and we've just had a redistricting cycle we went through. And so that sort of shakes things up to some degree, shakes up the districts, shakes up the the incumbents. Some incumbents have retired. 
you know, so we've got some open seats. So every every seat's going to be critical to whoever can capture the majority in the House. Right? So, I, yeah, I agree with that completely. And how are the Democrats doing in Georgia? I know you have a Democratic governor. And, of course, there was the controversy of the Trump people say the election was thrown. He wanted the uh, secretary of state there to declare it was a fraud and it didn't happen. But um, how are the Democrats holding up in Georgia? Well, the Democrats are... are are doing better than they have for about the last 20 years in Georgia. We actually have a Republican governor right now. Oh, I'm sorry. That's I'm okay. So Brian yeah. Kemp's that's governor, right. and he's running for re-election. So that's, that's we're, we're also having, you know, uh, races for state constitutional offices and state legislature and Congress and, of course, the U.S. Senate seat for Warnock. But, but you're right, you know, Biden won Georgia and uh, Warnock, and Ossoff won the two Senate seats in the January 2021 runoff. So uh, in, in terms of contesting and actually winning some statewide offices, which had not occurred in quite some time in Georgia, uh, the Democrats achieved some victories in 2020. So the question is, you know, can, as you said, Warnock's got to run for, you know, a full term now, um, you know, can he again, sort of shoot the gap and and get up above 50% and get that victory. In a, in a general election in Georgia, we're the only state where you have to win a majority mm-hmm. or there's a runoff in mm-hmm. the general election. Mm-hmm. So, and there were there will almost certainly be a libertarian candidate in that Senate race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the libertarian candidate got two to 3% of the vote, theoretically, and it was very close between uh, Warnock and the Republicans, say Walker, then that could throw things again into a runoff. That's why we had those runoffs in January 2021. So we we may not know to control the Senate once again until uh, 2023. Is that right? I never would have. I didn't predict that both U.S. Senate seats were going to go to a runoff in, in 2020. So it just it just shows me again never say never in politics <laughs> who, knows what, who knows what might happen i mean it's a crazy yes. world sometimes yes yes and what you know from texas we've had some texas guests on and that's just so wild out there you know what that's like how about the house seats in georgia are they uh what what is the breakdown not not specifically but is it is it more republican uh, overwhelmingly republican versus democrat yeah, I think the Republicans will maintain a majority share of the House seats in Georgia, um, and maybe possibly pick up one. There was there was a a seat uh, where two Democratic incumbents in the Atlanta metro area, up in Gwinnett County, were drawn into the same district, and so mm-hmm. it's possible the Republicans maybe plus one after this twenty twenty two election cycle. So. With the redistricting, I know in Maryland, they're challenging the redistricting uh, judges, throwing it out, saying the Democrats cheated and uh, and put in too many, you know, kind of gerrymandered them so that they could get ahead, which always happens. And the same thing here in Florida, which I think was inverted, that the Republicans had done this. What What's that situation in Georgia? Had they basically approved the redistricting? Uh, well, the, the General Assembly has passed a plan and it was signed by the governor. It's already been challenged in court. Um, it's been stayed uh, until after the election, though. So, wow. But, but there is a legal challenge, yes. Wow. <laughs> so it'll be the same, basically the same districts that we had in 2020. 
Well, now it'll be the new districts. Oh, it will. Okay. But the question is whether those districts will get to stand after 2022 or not. Uh, there'll right. be a trial, yeah, coming up. So, but for this election, did the redistricting turn into more seats for the Republicans? Uh, well, yeah. As, as I said, I think it. I think there might be one more Republican um, congressional seat that they squeezed out of the redistricting plan. So. It, 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 the challenge legally was actually more of a racial challenge, a racial gerrymandering challenge, as opposed to a partisan gerrymandering challenge. And what, what was the argument? Uh, that black voting strength had been diluted or cracked across too many districts. So, so we'll we'll see what the answer to that is when they actually have a trial. Yeah, and that's critical because I think black voters, both in Georgia and Pennsylvania, were credited with uh, carrying Biden uh, over the over the line. So um, that is critical. And in terms of the 2024 election, what do you see happening again? Do you see, I mean, if Trump runs again, we, we have a wild woolly uh, Texas shoot out there again. Yeah, I, I I think that's one of the biggest political questions I have right now is whether or not whether or not Trump is going to run or not, because I think I think that just makes so much difference one way or the other. Um, in ter- on the Republican side, at least. Um, so that's that's the big outstanding question. If if it would, were Trump against Biden again um, in Georgia, yeah, I would look for it to probably be pretty close once again. Um, but, but I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Again, that's yeah, another sure. question I don't know. Um, but it's a nail biter again in Georgia. It is, yes, I yeah, think so. Yeah. How about uh, they were talking if Trump doesn't run, the Florida governor um, Ron DeSantis is is considered probably the front runner, and you know, as a p- political science professor, that could change it a week before the election. But um, does he pull well in Georgia, being a neighboring state? I haven't seen any particular specific polling on DeSantis in Georgia, but I would think he would probably poll well among Republicans, certainly in Georgia. Yeah, especially in that, probably in that area like Valdosta and the areas closer to Florida because they're probably getting the Florida media and, and seeing a, uh, seeing a lot of him. So Right. Um, I mean, he's he's somewhat Trump-like. Oh, big time. But, but big not time. exactly, obviously, Trump. I mean, right. Trump just has some baggage that's too much for some people to vote for him. I mean, because Trump got fewer votes than... David Perdue did in the Senate race in the general election. So, I mean, he, he was polling or not polling. He was actually getting fewer votes than one of the Senate candidates. So there were clearly some people in the state who may have been conservative or moderate who just could not make themselves vote for Trump. And maybe they didn't vote for anyone for president. Yeah. Yeah. What does Herschel Walker and Warnock have to do, do you think, in this in this race? This is um, again, it's a critical race that could control, you know, control the outcome of the Senate and who rules the Senate. What do you think those candidates have to do? Herschel's somewhat of an untested candidate. I mean, he's a celebrity and a football star in Georgia and everyone knows who he is, but he's never run for office before. Right. And, you know, so he's somewhat untested. So he's going to have to really polish up on policy issues and and be able to talk the talk, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, Warnock, of course, is a very accomplished speaker. I mean, he 
he speaks at least once a week, right? So right, right, Sundays. Right. <laughs> um, That's right. He's a preacher. That's right. right. Yeah. So uh, he's very well spoken, and uh, he's he is the incumbent, which you know may or may not help. Um, but certainly, I think he's become better versed at some of these policy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he has to appear to Georgians, Warnock, that is, is not being too far left, you know, right. more in the middle, more of an appeal. And you've seen some of the campaign commercials that have been run mm-hmm. are about how he's helping all Georgians and working across the aisle. And so it's some some really good feel good uh, campaign commercials from Warnock. So, yeah. And how about Latino voters in terms of winning them over? What do you think these two Senate candidates will have to do? Well, I, you know, I think a lot of it's going to be economics uh, or the economic pitch. Um, And our economy is in fair shape right now in Georgia. We've got a huge budget surplus like a lot of states. Um, We actually, the legislature actually just voted for a tax cut. So, uh, again, the extent to which Warnock sort of gets um, you know, stuck with the National Democratic Party and inflation and all that, that's not going to help him, I think, with Hispanics, um, you know. And so yeah, I guess it's a question of how much he can sort of distance himself from from Biden and inflation and all the other economic problems that are going on right now. Yeah, I, I'm interested in watching Herschel Walker because, as you know from some of his, his appearances, he says some controversial things and he says things kind of off the top of his head not not being very political um and i think a lot of people thought trump was going to shoot himself in the foot by doing that when he ran for president but it seemed to help him (laughs) that is that is very true he was trump was very different as a candidate in terms of he said just whatever he thought and it didn't matter what anybody else thought so which is not the way most political candidates operate um So, I, I mean, I do think Herschel is going to have to get a little more disciplined on message, though, and and guard against just saying whatever is on the top of his head, necessarily. Um, you know, I, I think conservatives are going to be, if he's the nominee, which it looks like he will be, because in every every poll I've seen thus far, he's running away with running away with the nomination. No, no pun intended. <laughs> um, I mean, literally, literally right. these, these other right. candidates are getting no traction at all. And right. so, I mean, conservatives are more than happy to vote for him. I mean, I mean it's this, it's the moderate vote um, that he's going to have to, you know, win over enough moderates in the state um, to get up above that 50 percent mark again. Well, I can say that I've already beat Herschel Walker. I went to Penn State. We beat them in the championship in 1983. He was the back. So I can say we've already beat him. But uh, George is the champions right now. Is that right? That's right. That's, that's, yeah, finally. (laughs) 40 years. I say say finally because all anyone ever talked about was the 1980 championship. So now we can talk about the 2021 championship finally. and you and you've got some great competition coming up political competition we we really appreciate you joining us it was a great conversation and appreciate your uh, analyst's uh, hat on and uh, we wish you everything uh, but you know we wish you the good luck well thank you i really enjoyed talking with y'all all right thanks for being on okay
All right, we're going to bring in our executive producer, special guest Mike Gugat, and um, our, of course, Wizard of Pods, Brad Maybe. We regret to announce that this will be our final podcast as we suspend it to seek some financial support to continue. But I wanted to bring the guys on and talk about some episodes that you may want to go back and uh, listen to um, on RetailPoliticsPodcast.com. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Jerry. Yes, yes. What a nice ride. How many episodes of these did we do, Brad? Uh, this will be uh, 76. I wow, that, that's a great number to have, 1776. Oh, that's yeah, when we yeah, started. And Philly right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, Philly. Philly, yes. Um, so I was thinking back, I went through some of our uh, reports, and it, it was really, uh, it's a fine body of work, and I appreciate you guys for doing it. Um, the, um, Jerry, some of the- Jerry, Jerry, can I quick jump in and just say yeah. that as the executive producer, it's my fault we ran out of money. <laughs> no, it is not. not. I, I, I accept. I accept uh, the gentleman's fault. Yes. Way to go, Brad! You sound like you're in Congress. That's appropriate. That's very appropriate. But I was looking back. I, I will and, yield uh, to the gentleman, the host. So that's right. That's right. Um, I was looking back at, at some of them, and of course, the people who had joined us a few times were were the ones that I really, um, you know, some of those episodes I really enjoyed doing. And I guess Gary McElhenney, the police analyst that we had he was he was with us a couple times and uh he's actually got a new book um coming out so um i want to make sure we get a plug of that in there it is called bleeding blue four decades policing the violent city of baltimore that'll be out next month on amazon.com and i would encourage everyone to read that if they're uh, interested in policing i think the one thing that gary really brought across was he kind of gave us both sides i remember when we were first talking about the george floyd issue he was of course he's going to support the police and and back the blue but I, I think he agreed with us that there needed to be more communication um, skills with police officers because as we noted you know a lot of these um a lot of these killings, uh, police killings, um, really grew out of pretty minor issues. In Wendy's, a guy was parked in the, in the line and he fell asleep. And then we had George Floyd, who was investigated for, I think, trying to pass a $20 bill. And these things just escalated. And he even said, you know, as a result of, uh, of, of poor communication, I guess the other woman that stands out was... Um, Phyllis Alexander, she came in and talked about race. Well, wait, before you, be, wait, before, yeah, before you go off of Gary, uh, uh, he uh, he was one of the, the the top guests that I also had listed. I, was he on twice or three he, times? He might have been on three times. Yeah. Uh, Gary also helped us out when we were first starting. He did a like a an audition kind of reel That's for right. us to That's get right. you into into, right. the, into the interview spirit, uh, you know, yes. the podcasting thing. And and Jerry definitely uh, straight shooter, uh, and like you said, he he talked both sides of the coin. He he was, you know, tough on on the criminals, but you know he also took a look at the cops and and you know put blame where, where there should be blame. And um, which was the leadership. He just felt yeah, the leadership well, didn't do their job. But, but one of my favorite quotes from Gary was I think his his first appearance where he was talking about you know being a cop back in the day. 
And if he was out on a call and he heard over the radio a certain cop was coming, he'd be like, oh, man, I don't, yes, I don't yes. want this guy on my call. Because yes. <laughs> he knew it was going to end bad. It wasn't yeah, going to end like, well. There, there were cops like that. Yeah, so <laughs> Gary was definitely one of my all-time favorite guests on Retail Politics. And, uh, in, in that, and also because we love Gary so much, uh, a friend of mine does a, a different uh, podcast that, that, that involves police and, and telling you know tales of, of their policing days, which I recommended uh, – Gary to be a guest when his book comes out. So he'll get a Yes, for sure, for sure. So I would just you real know, quick on Gary, guys, would like to think that somebody from the Biden administration was regularly listening to our podcast because at this last State of the Union, President Biden actually talked about funding the police. And Gary mm-hmm. talked about the importance and that Democrats could find a way, you know, when he explained you know, how discretionary, you know, resources are used by police forces. And, uh, but if somebody was listening from the Biden administration, this would probably, you know, not be our last episode. So that, that right. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, the one you were mentioning, the quote that stood out with you, Brad, the one that stood out with me with Gary was we were talking about how police need to kind of use verbal judo. They need to be a little more interactive, you know, not walk up to the car and say license and registration, but walk up and say, Hey, look, you're going a little fast. Is there something wrong? Can I help you? And the one thing he said, if someone doesn't want to corroborate, they're not going to cooperate. You know, you can use all the <laughs> verbal judo and all the kindness and all the niceness, but if they don't want to cooperate, they're not going to cooperate. <laughs> I thought that yeah. was a, that was a that was a great line. The other lady that stood out was Phyllis Alexander, and you know, we dealt with uh, twice. We had her on. We dealt with race, which is always a volatile issue, and I thought she was just a, again a straight shooter, as you said. Uh, she had a great sense of humor and a great laugh, but she was pretty in your face about what this country needs to do. And I think the um, I think the quote that stood out for me is that, you know, we're living in two different worlds. The whites are living in their world. The blacks are living in their world. The Hispanics are living in their world. You know, the, the Asians are living in their world. And the need for us to all kind of start to experience other other, other worlds. And, and, and she, um, I always enjoyed having her on. Yeah, no, she was uh, also a great guest. Uh, and to that, uh, another woman of color, uh, Carrie Lassard, uh, came on and did the politics of Native Americans for us right. on Thanksgiving. Yes. Uh, she was also uh, a tremendous guest. And, and Phyllis, too, was uh, anytime we had, uh, uh, you know, people of color on to talk about those issues were also some of the highlights of retail politics for sure. I think something I was most proud of that both of you did with this podcast was with those guests, you were able to have conversations that, you know, traditionally would get uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. because that's yeah. not what we created, you mm-hmm. know, we weren't looking to be, you know, on opposite sides of the road in the ditch, confrontational, you know, right? be confrontational that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as, as somebody that got to participate in this, I got to be, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of things that I learned and, and, uh, uh, and how to communicate to, you know, uh, people of color in my life and so you're saying like we didn't mess up right we didn't mess up (laughs) i'm I'm sure we've found a few times to screw up but i I think uh, you know again testament to you two and the quality of the guests that we you know we when we set out to do this you know we we did do it in a fashion that was respectful Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think Brad, when you know Brad would talk to guests, he would say that, "Well, look, it's a non-confrontational, you know, half hour. We're not, you know, we're not doing a gotcha." And one of the things, like, we got a great review from an Apple um, listener, and uh, she said it sounded like 
just having a conversation in a bar and nobody was yelling at you and no one was telling you how to think. It was just, you know, you learned, but it wasn't a beat you over the head kind of thing. And that, that was, that would made me proud. Well, you know, the funny thing is in, in retrospect, I wish we would have had at least one of those. I, <laughs> I wish one just would have got out of hand. Gene, you ignorant slut. Well, uh, yeah, no, that never, it never, it never happened. No one. Uh, well, but I, I do think, I do think we had some colorful guests and I think Ken Herman, you know, our, our resident expert on Texas certainly made us laugh quite a bit. And, uh, oh, he sure did. Know, he, well, he's got a, he's got a lot to work with down there. Those people are crazy. <laughs> The best was the the best was the Ted Cruz fleeing the snowstorm. He left all his constituents and went to Mexico. <laughs> and uh, Ted Cruz is just always easy to he's a, he's a softball. You're going to stick over the roof because he you know he just does stupid things. But the best part was his dog was named Snowball, <laughs> and he left the dog behind. <laughs> Well, I, I thought another one that was so funny was, uh, you know, we were talking about, you know, if, if Trump would run again and and he said something like, well, the last time we elected, you know, a, a 78 year old president was in November. <laughs> that was a great line. That was a great line. That was a great line. One of the more recent guests I really enjoyed having on was uh, Jeff Fleischman with the Los Angeles Times. And he um, he talked about Russia and the Ukraine and the fact that he had been a foreign correspondent over there really um, gave us some insight. And, and the quote that stood out to me was, you know, Putin is raising the ghosts of the Cold War. I thought that was a that was a great line. And he, um, you know, I thought he added a lot to the immediacy that we needed on those two issues. I, I got to tell you, though, that, that this is the kind of behind the scenes story. So I called him up. I got stuck. I had someone lined up. And then uh, we lost them. And it was a Wednesday night. We were going to record on Thursday. And I'm trying to think, like, who? And well, Jeff and I worked in Allentown together. And I was like, oh, Fleischman, you know. So I, I called him up. And he's like, yeah, you know. And that was the day that the, the, the Taliban took one of his photographers. His photographer had been walking. And they went off course. And they ended up in the middle of a pack of Taliban soldiers and they captured them basically. And they said, you're ours, you know? And it was a cool thing because the photographer uh, said Los Angeles Times and one of the Taliban guys spoke English and he understood. So he, the guy said, hey, let them go. And they gave them monster drinks. They gave them monster drinks to drink because that's what the soldiers drank. So um, that, that afternoon we were supposed to uh, set it up um, Fleischman was on the desk dealing with the fact that one of his photographers on his foreign team is captured, you know, so we're going back and forth. Can you do it? Can you not? Can you? So he was really gracious uh, to do it. And I just thought he added a lot. Yeah, no, that was that was definitely a great episode for sure. And the other one that, that kind of recent was the Robert Lincoln um, session we did. That was just fascinating because, you know, you heard so much about Lincoln, but when, when it's done, you're like, what happened to his family? What happened to his wife? What happened to his son? And his son actually had a very fascinating life. Um, yes. You know, that was, that was a pretty interesting, and it, it was a great book. What I, what I loved about that episode was, you know, sometimes history can get really boring. And that episode was so fascinating. And, and my takeaway from that was, you know, Robert uh, Todd Lincoln was born, you know, with virtually nothing in terms of uh, mechanisms in modern world. And then, you know, died with uh, electricity, a car. And um, I think a telephone or the telegraph. So, you know, he lived at a time when 
when the whole world changed, which yes. really made that. that yeah, it was that forty-year period from eighteen seventy to like nineteen twenty. That that's right, and we remember that. And uh, he also ended up, and I can't remember the name of the company. But he ended up being the chairman, president, CEO of this really big company. So he was actually a mastermind in business at that time. Which um, you know, he didn't want anything to do with politics, but he sure did um, accomplish a lot in business. Anyone's come to mind for you, Mike, aside from Mr. Herman? Well, one we never were able to get, but was really the inspiration for the start of the podcast, and that was you. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I was thinking back that the summer before last, you phoned me up because you had a book coming out. That's right, yeah. And when you described the front row, it just so happened to be that I was reading Pete Hamill's A Drinking Life. yes. And I have always enjoyed reading your works and you had mm -hmm. called just asking if there, you know, might be a way in which we could market and, you know, promote the book. And, uh, you know, I think the type of guest and the quality of guests that we got are really a testament to you, your career and the, the people that, uh, you know, really enjoy talking to you. So I just want to say, you know, thanks for letting me pitch this idea to you and yeah. accepting and, uh, me getting to uh, again be the fly on the wall yeah that's very kind i got a great pete hamill story so i read a drinking life and that was a that was a wild party for years but that really kind of uh, hit me on the head that book because he grew up irish and catholic and he was saying how you know we drank from baptism to funeral right you had a big baptism party you had a communion party and then the funeral you're going to have the wake and the drinking and the, you know remembering you know and the sad songs and so i uh, i had that book and he was um down in south florida i think on a conference and i took it down with him down with me and i got him to sign it and we sat down and chatted a little while and he he uh was just a wonderful speaker because he's an amazing 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 man with um with words i just watched a documentary on frank sinatra which was wonderful it's called all or nothing at all which was one of his songs and they interviewed pete hamill and he just nailed it he said frank sinatra was the poet laureate of loneliness and i was like man i mean there was two hours but that one line <laughs> summed it up and he there's another great documentary with him and jimmy breslin they, they talk about their lives and um at one point in the documentary pete hamill says in front of a tree and just describes this tree. I mean, he could have wrote a book on just this tree. So, um, yeah, that was kind of an interesting uh, one on the, that, that book's a, a great book too. So I know we've talked about this being a last episode, but since the infrastructure and all the other pieces are there in place and, you know, I might lose all our listeners in proposing this, but I think the three of us should check in, you know, at least every few weeks and, uh, have a little bit more of a conversation like this. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. It'd be wonderful. Well, it's been great guys. We did it. We did it. And, uh, wait, hold on one yeah. second. I've got a couple that I would like to add. Okay. Uh, sure. Sure. Uh, Rabbi Uter would call oh, us from Israel yes, a couple of times yes, to talk about yes. kosher. His conversations oh, were yeah. so fascinating because it was, it was a lot of stuff about uh, Jewish people that I didn't know. So mm -hmm. I was, I was very interested in, in, in Rabbi Uter's, uh, Pete Leffler, did we mention him? He was yeah, he was uh, one of our first guests. Yeah, he was a multiple guest. And then going way back to our second episode, um, 
oh shoot, what was the guy's name? It was the politics of fake news. Oh yeah, uh, the guy from Stony Brook, uh, yeah. Howard Schneider. Yeah, Howard he Schneider. was yeah. great, and that was yeah. a, a fascinating episode. Uh, you know, especially when when we started the, the podcast, October that goes back to October twenty twenty. Mm. You know, fake fake news was. <laughs> Come yeah, because we were going into the election. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. He was. Uh, he was very fascinating. What was most fascinating about what he, he talked about was was who was responsible for most of the misinformation. Yeah. And it was the grandparents on. <laughs> yes, it was all the old folks. <laughs> Grandma, you're in timeout. You were passing. You were passing bad messages. You were passing fake news. You're in timeout. That was a fascinating. Uh, that was a fascinating revelation because none of us knew that they were the big culprits. You know, and Rabbi Uter, he was really great. He was. Um, it's so funny because, you know, a lot of times what I did is I would talk to people before we got recording just to put them at ease. So I'd ask them, hey, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? So Uter and I are talking and he grew up in Jersey, North Jersey, yep. but he spent most of his time in New York. And um, so I said, oh, I grew up in Philadelphia. And he said his father was a crazy Phillies fan, Philadelphia Phillies baseball fan. So much so he's in he's in Jerusalem with them. He got a satellite put on so we could watch the Phillies game. <laughs> so I thought that was, uh, I thought that was wonderful. Speaking uh, of the Phillies, you're thumping my A's five to nothing right now. Yeah, well, you know, what are you going to say? Hey, the, the Mets uh, beat the Nationals last night. Twelve hits, five runs. I'll take it. And they've got a bigger payroll than the Skanks. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. You, you guys are trying to buy a championship. You're pulling the Yankees here, so you know I, I don't, I never mind the Mets, but I think I'm going to root against them. I'm not against you, Brad. You're against your team because they're trying to buy a championship. So, well, well the whole city of Philadelphia can fall into the Delaware River for all I care, Chair. <laughs> so right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> that's great all right we've appreciated all you loyal listeners and i wanted to also express a particular gratitude for our friends in europe who provided some really nice feedback uh thanks to mike who came up with the political podcast idea the retail politics podcast idea and of course brad who not only has provided technical skill in putting it together each week but has added character through joining in with me on some of the fun and insightful conversations. I want to send out a special Jerry. thanks to uh, you're welcome, buddy. I want to send out a special thanks to John One Take Terzis down here in Florida. He has served <laughs> as a wonderful voice coach and he provided the expertise to get me the necessary technical equipment to make it happen. So uh, thanks to One Take. And we hope to be back soon. Well, wait, before you go, I, you know, the one thing that I never got to use, and this was always at the ready. Nobody said anything funny on this podcast. Otherwise, this would have been right there. Yes. <laughs> That's right. You didn't get to use that. So we I got to I got to use it once. <laughs> Does anybody want to say anything funny? Well, here, I got something. I think the Phillies are going to win the World Series this year. Oh, why, you little. Uh, very, very good. So we hope to be back soon. But until then, I want to say a little blessing to you all. May the road rise to meet you. The wind always be at your back and the sunshine warm upon the face and the rain falls softly on you and your loved ones. And until we meet again, always remember to read behind the headlines. All the best. <laughs>